Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Hello, everyone. I'm Ed Gotham, and welcome to another episode of Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. We've got John Mayer from New York on the show today, who is currently Chief Investment Officer at GlobalX, the highly respected provider of a range of interesting ETF products such as LIT, the Lithium and Battery Tech ETF, as well as model portfolios. Previously, John worked at Merrill Lynch Wealth Management as a senior portfolio manager for its ETF model portfolio business. Now, though, John shapes GlobalX's market outlook, leading on the construction of all model portfolios. We had a great chat about assessing your risk profile, constructing a portfolio to achieve different goals, as well as highlighting some interesting themes from the equity thematic disruptors portfolio. Enjoy. Hi, John. Great to have you on the show. Um, You're in New York, I believe. How's everything going there? Hey, Ed. How are you? Thanks for having me on the show. Uh, New York is is pretty good. So it's a sunny day today, and each day it seems to be the streets get more crowded. been trying to model a uh, fairly normal life, pre a pre-COVID type of life. I walk my son to school every day, take the subway to work. There's a handful of people in the office as we migrate more towards the new normal of uh, having people come in, yet with some flexibility. Yeah, that's m- much the same as um, us in, in, in London, actually. Uh, I, I'm, I work in the city and um, people are coming back now, it's getting busier and but we, yeah, optional on, on coming in. So there's about half people that are in uh, at the moment. But it's, it's nice to get a bit of normality back. There's, the shops have opened up recently as well. And I think from next week, people can start going to restaurants again and stuff, um, which should be lots of people waiting to do that. <laughs> um, and that's great. Uh, and, and in New York, are the people going, is, I don't know how, what sort of stage they're at. Are they, have they opened up restaurants and things at the moment? And, yeah, restaurants yeah. are open. Uh, I had lunch yesterday with uh, a colleague, and I have a, a business lunch scheduled for tomorrow. It's, I believe, next week. Uh, everything's at a hundred percent capacity. Oh, wow. That's cool. And Broad- Broadway opens in September, which is still a ways away. Yeah. But uh, moving towards uh, having a, a full city again, which will be yeah, that's really awesome. nice. It's great to see that we're moving ahead on that. So. Um, I wanted to quickly start by asking uh, your opinion on well, the equity markets over the last year have had, had sort of huge inflows. Um, it appears to be more of an expansion of the market. Well, maybe bo- both of these things are happening, but more of an expansion of the market rather than just the same people just becoming more speculative. Do you agree with that? And, and if so, what, what does that mean for the future of people in the stock market? Yeah, I mean, some of it is, is anecdotal in the sense that there are certainly uh, online trading platforms that have seen a, a new user base, a younger user base, and a user base that really has had not much to do over the past 13 to 15 months as we've sat home um, through the pandemic. Combine that particularly in some of the developed markets where 
there has been uh, higher savings rates as a result of money from uh, government programs. So even for folks who have been unemployed, there has been still a uh, income source. And with the in the U.S., the Fed being um, having easy um, uh, monetary policy and, and fiscal policy with both Congress and the Fed, you you are seeing um, a, a risk appetite. Yeah. So I, I think that's fair to say that there's been a broadening base. Will it continue? Uh, it's unclear. It's not always going to be as easy to to make money. The stock market yeah. is not going to always go in one direction. Uh, it it kind of moves in that direction over time. And um, but there has been a short um, move. Yes, yeah, so global X, I would say that would uh, change uh, which over. a number of ETFs and and model portfolios. Um you're in charge of the model portfolio I believe and are you able to introduce people to what those are uh, how how many different sort of portfolios there are etc. Sure. Uh, I, I I run our model portfolio business. We have 12 different model portfolios. We have asset allocation models, which we call our core series, which include stock, bonds, and cash. We have thematic portfolios, which really speaks to our DNA at, at Global X because we do have uh, many thematic ETFs. We have a China, uh, China sector uh, portfolio. We have an equity income portfolio because many of our ETFs focus on income, but income coming from, from equities. So we have 12 in total. Um, it's a fairly new business relative to Global X, not that Global X is so old. Um, but it, it becomes a, kind of the second generation of, okay, we have a slate of ETFs. You know, what are we going to do with e- these ETFs and how do we holistically put them together? Um, and we do take an open architecture approach. So it's not just Global X ETFs in our model portfolios. There's there's a couple that are purely global XETFs, but for the most part, we do take an open architecture look at the broader ETF universe to provide the appropriate exposure, particularly if we don't have that specific exposure within our suite. Yeah. And so these model portfolios are basically um, combinations of various ETFs. Some are available at Global X that you'll use, but you'll use other ones as well. And you're packaging them up for intermediaries, and potentially is that there's some sort of uh, offering for retail as well. Yeah, the, the ultimately the, the end user is the is the retail consumer. Um, they are distributed through financial advisors um, on different platforms. So we're currently on eleven different platforms in the U.S. We are we have expanded globally as well um, into uh, India as well as Mexico. We will be having, um, as our usage business expands in Europe, um, I foresee a uh, portfolio um, within Europe in the coming months as we broaden our ETF um, lineup in Europe. And some of these um, ETFs, the uh, model portfolios, are constructed in relation to individuals' risk profiles my question here, which is, you know, many individuals, especially people that are relatively new to it or haven't been in it too long, um, they might not know their risk profile. Do you, know, do you have any insight on how they might go about discovering what that is or where would you start, et cetera? Sure. 
Uh, with respect to risk tolerance, we, we build portfolios, uh, the, the, our asset allocation models, we have a conservative model, we have a moderately conservative, a moderate, moderately aggressive and aggressive. So there's five basic risk profiles. So an investor usually falls into one of those categories. The, the financial industry has tools in place to ascertain risk tolerance. There are, there are digital applications and surveys that can assist an investor. Uh, also, financial advisors can uh, assist uh, an investor to determine where their risk tolerance lies. You have different types of portfolios like our thematic disruptors portfolio, which is a more gro- growth, more momentum-oriented portfolio. And one would say it's higher risk. And then you would d- decide how that type of portfolio fits into your broader asset allocation. So a thematic type of portfolio is more forward-looking. Uh, is taking the view that next time it's going to be different than the last. And when you typically build an asset allocation model, you're looking looking at repeating patterns from the past. So you're kind of fusing two different concepts together and you just have to use it, use that thematic portfolio uh, in a moderated way based on the risk tolerance of a a specific client. And some of these digital applications and these surveys really help help an investor really determine where they should be, uh, when they're going to retire, what are their goals. Okay, and so this is typically something uh, something a financial advisor would go through with someone um, to ascertain that early on. Yeah, the 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 client would go through their their financial advisor. Their their financial advisor usually has tools available to them, made available by the firm that they work at, uh, okay. to ascertain the risk tolerance. And, yeah, and got you. Um, now I'd like to dig into these uh, model portfolios in a, a lot more detail. Before that, I wanted I wondered if you could possibly uh, give us a brief history of your career today because you, you've been a few places in, across your career and it'd be interesting to know um, what you've learned from those places and also just a bit more detail about specifically what you do at Global X. Yeah, so I, I, I've been in the industry since 1996, uh, so I guess I'm starting to become an old-timer. I started my career uh, at, uh, excuse me, at Payne Weber which was ultimately purchased by uh, UBS. Uh, I started at Payne Weber right after I returned from the Peace Corps. I lived in Ukraine for a couple of years. And uh, when I returned, Ukraine is is an emerging or frontier market. And I I felt like I had this this great experience as working in an emerging market. But what I found was trying to get a job on Wall Street back in 1996 was that yeah, I lived in an emerging market, but I didn't really have any any real skills that uh, would help me get that job other than saying, yeah, I lived there. So I had to convince somebody to give me a job. So I, at Payne Weber, I was hired as a research associate um, assisting the analysts covering closed-end funds. And closed-end funds can be invested in many different things, and whether it be equities or fixed income, and many in the U.S., many of them are leveraged. And so I did that for a while. And then concurrently, the ETF business started to, to grow. So over time, I, I got promoted and I would write primers on, on the ETF business as well as covering closed-end funds. So I was at UBS and Payne Weber for 11 years. Then I joined uh, Merrill Lynch prior to Bank of America acquiring Merrill Lynch about a year prior. And this was just before the financial crisis. And I was hired as a, as a research analyst covering closed-end funds. 
And a couple of years into my stay at Merrill Lynch, after um, Bank of America took over Merrill Lynch, I was asked to take over some of the, the model portfolios that they were running, which were just a very, it was a very small operation. They were created in 2005. The ETF business was pretty small in 2005. Uh, wasn't as differentiated and segmented as it is today. Uh, so when I took over the models in 2009, which the models really followed Merrill Lynch's asset allocation. So they were there just to, to for a way to uh, actually invest in the asset allocation. Um, I said, wow, you know, the ETF market has grown since these were created and these, these portfolios really haven't received much love. And can I do something with them? Can I create something better, get put more segmentation within the models? And from 2009 to 2017, when I, when I left, I, I built the model portfolio business at Merrill Lynch from virtually nothing to when I when I left, it was approximately fifty billion dollars in assets. I would say of the sixteen thousand financial advisors at Merrill Lynch, half of the financial advisors used the model portfolios. They were uh, called the Mayor Models, and uh, I didn't ask for them to be called the Mayor Models, but they just because my name was tagged to the models, and literally half the financial advisors used them. They gave them a name. It was easy to find in the system. Type in Mayer, M-A-I-E-R, which is not the typical way you spell Mayer, but they got used to it. That's how they found them. I'm not sure Merrill Lynch loved that they were called the Mayer models. They don't like to brand it to one anything to one specific person, uh, but that's the kind of the colloquial name for the models. So in 2017, uh, I, I left and joined Global X. And just to kind of one, this is taking a while, but one quick step back was, uh, what what I was doing in the models was kind of the early stages of thematic investing. So when I when I looked at a particular sector like IT, for example, information technology, I, took, I said to myself, what else could I do to get more segmented? And one of the things that I included in the models when I was there was cloud computing, um, as well as the internet or, or biotech for healthcare exposure. I'm like, and, and to me, it was looking at the future while looking at more of a traditional paradigm of, of uh, you know, asset allocation, putting, you know, why is next time going to be different and how can I be exposed in the portfolio? And when I, I came across Global X's product suite, I'm like, wow, they're, they're really looking at the future and looking at ideas that next time is really going to be different. And how are these themes disrupting different sectors that were currently available? So I'm like, well, this could be an interesting opportunity. And I was at a point in my career, I, I think I want to join a smaller firm and grow with that firm. And I just liked the product suite that GlobalX offered. And I liked the management team and the opportunity. Yeah, it's funny you say that. that um, it seems to be an incredibly interesting time for the stock market because it's slightly related to how um, all this innovation in the last sort of well, last thirty years, but you can see it getting uh, increasingly um, more rapid. You're getting all these new sectors appear in the stock market that, that weren't there before. Uh, Global X is one of the one of the providers that, that offers ETFs that cover a lot of these areas. Um, really, there's not that many people uh, in the industry that are doing a good job of that at the moment. I suppose that's why Global X is known for the thematic based ETFs that they provide. Um, so you essentially said that was the move from Merrill Lynch to Global X was about the opportunity that 
it provided in, in innovating in, in the financial uh, instruments sort of area? Yeah, you know, I, I spent 20 years at two large firms. And when I joined Global X, it was, we had, when I was talking to them, there were, we were about $3 billion in assets when I actually joined and, and signed on the dotted line. Uh, we had about $5 billion in assets. So just in a couple months of that period back in 2017, we, we grew a good amount. And it was, I felt the product suite was really looking towards the future. And I thought the management team was very innovative. Uh, the current CEO, Louis Baruga, um, and I really connected and really connected on, on strategy going forward. Um, and I also saw how Global X was really building itself. Uh, while we were a much smaller firm four years ago, we had every functional area from research to marketing to, um, to product development. And each of those areas over the past four years have really grown uh, in, in, in outputs, in the amount of people in the departments, and just, just the way we think. And you know, research really has driven this firm as well. Um, Jay Jacobs, who has our research department, um, I'm going to get the number wrong here, but I believe there are about 12 people in the research department at this point. Uh, so all of the products that we actually come out with, um, we support with research. Um, and it's not always saying that this theme is great right now, uh, but this theme is, has potential for the future. And here are what the, what the companies are doing within that ETF. And the great thing about just generally about an ETF, whether it be you know, a thematic, thematic exposure, whether it be financial technology or um, electric vehicles or video games and esports, you're including companies within that ETF. So you're providing some amount of diversification by having you know, 20 or more companies within the ETF. Then not all of the ETFs, uh, all of the companies within the ETF map to the same sector. So there is some inherent diversification within um, many of the thematic ETFs, which I think is a little bit of a misnomer in the market. Mm -hmm. So model portfolios, I like to dig into the options there uh, a bit more, because quite a few different things you offer. Uh, just, just before we start doing that, um, are you, do you actively manage these portfolios in some way? Are, are they updated you know, based on changing market conditions over time and things? So the the ETFs, ETF, most of our ETFs are passively managed. The actual ETF, not the portfolios. So the ETF follows rules, the index rules. So that that that's one. That's the the component that we're using for the portfolio. Now, when I create a portfolio, say our equity thematic disruptors portfolio, uh, which is really designed to target those um, changing demographics and changing um, structural how we how we view the market going forward um, we we are putting them together in an active way so I, I like to say that you know passive is is not really passive um, sure you're, you're using a passive instrument are surrounded by an active strategy now that active strategy, um, involves a couple different things. First, you have to select the ETF that you're using, select the specific exposure out of many different ETFs that exist in the market. So that's that's an active decision. 
just using the actual ETF and the ETF structure as an active decision. And then coming up with a weighting mechanism, a weighting scheme to put them all together. Uh, for the thematic disruptions portfolio, we use uh, forward sales growth um, as, a, as a, a weighting uh, metric for the portfolio. And we typically reweight the portfolio on a quarterly basis. So it's both a qualitative and a quantitative process. The qualitative process is selecting a theme um, that we believe will play out over time. And then um, the quantitative process is actually waiting from the pool that's been selected, waiting the themes. And can you tell us a bit about the construction of um, equity thematic disruptors, maybe highlighting some of the most interesting themes that you think have the highest potential? Sure. Um, you know, within, um, so we, we have 10 different themes with, within that portfolio. Now, we typically, there's an adoption curve for themes and themes could, could take five to 10 years to play out. Now, over the past year, we, we've seen an acceleration of, of many different themes because of the pandemic. Now, the pandemic really kind of Flip the paradigm, if you will, on um, the adoption curve. So, if you think about fintech or social media or video games and esports to up to uh, occupy our time, or robotics and artificial intelligence or cloud computing, many of these different themes really really helped us carry through the pandemic. Now, um, you know, a theme that's on a lot of people's mind right now is cybersecurity. And in, in the U.S., um, there was a, a, a ransom, ransom, ransomware cybersecurity attack on a pipeline. And that's... Yeah, and that. If you think about many different areas, whether it be hospitals or uh, state and local governments, they, many have been attacked by... Um, you know, cyber terrorists in a sense. So I think cybersecurity is a theme that really is, is very important and, and is going to continue to um, be with us in both protection of our personal data, which is very important, um, as well as protection of our systems. As everything is moving towards is more digitally and online, that, that's just a theme that's just is undeniable. And while it's pulled back a little bit this year, um, as there's been more of a rotation towards towards value, um, as the, there was a, a big run up in many of these different teams last year, I do believe that cybersecurity is is, is very important and relevant. Um, also, a, another theme that is important is is robotics and 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 machine learning. And if you think about some of um, the demographic shifts that we are seeing in the world, um, you just look at China, for example. Um, their declining birth rate, and how does that play out over time? Um, Japan, robot, robotics is, is big in Japan um, because of kind of the shifting demographics, where um, you know, there's there's an older population that needs to be uh, taken care of in some way, shape, or form. And um, the robotic technology um, you know, probably can assist um, in, in those areas. So th those are two areas that um. Um, uh, I believe are very important, uh, as, as well as many other. You just think about what happened over the past year. Imagine if we weren't able to store data on the cloud. We, would, we could be doing what we're doing right now. 
um, Zoom really took off during the pandemic. And that kind of is, is intersection of the cloud and cybersecurity and, and other technology. So, How do you choose and weight those different themes uh, within the, the model portfolio? So in terms of, of we, how we, uh, we select the theme, so we, we look at a pool of themes looking at um, the overall landscape um, and what's available in the market, you know, whether you look at cloud computing, video games and esports, um, social media, financial technology, um, and where they are in the adoption curve. So if you think about different themes, uh, there's, there's five stages of adoption. Uh, there's the, the innovators, and, and many of these companies really don't, don't, don't exist in the public domain. They're still in kind of the private equity stages. Then there's the, the early adopters. Um, and we're trying to look for an acceleration and, and revenue growth for, for the companies in the underlying ETF that we select. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're looking for the, those companies that are in the public domain that where revenues are growing and adoption is increasing. And then, you know, we look at these forward sales growth numbers because we think that's a good metric because some of the companies that are included within the ETF may not actually be earning money because they're in fairly early stages of adoption. So it, it was a metric that makes sense. And we're looking for that acceleration of that, that growth. Now, in terms of you know, we look at it in a few different ways. We look at four-week re- reading of, of the forward sales growth numbers. We look at uh, eight-week average over two years. Um, and then we look at um, more of a, a stability bucket of uh, the inverse of the standard deviation of the forward sales growth numbers, probably more than your, your listeners want to hear. But um, then we put that together and uh, select a that comes up with the weighting of the portfolio. We cap the exposure at 15%. So that'll be the highest weighting of any theme. Okay. Uh, And are there any sort of disruptive themes that that you're keeping an eye on that, that you're allowed to talk about that um, aren't available or aren't included in, in your, your equity thematic disruptor at the moment? Well, you know, wh- one thing that I, that, I'm, that I think is really important um, and we do have sustainable portfolios is, is just sustainable investing in general. Um, sustainable investing for a long time, it was kind of a, a nice to have. It was more aspirational and you just, kind of step back for a moment, sustainable investing really broadly describes an investment approach that incorporates uh, environmental, social, and, uh, and or governance considerations, while at the same time generating financial returns. And many, particularly today in the U.S. and around the globe, want to potentially facilitate positive environmental and social changes without sacrificing financial returns. And that's an approach sustainable investing offers, and it, it also offers it through a, a thematic lens. Now, with climate action, climate change action now being really important, um, it's an objective that needs to be dealt with both from a bottoms-up and um, top-down approach. 
the bottoms up, meaning the companies need to um, facilitate um, or reduce carbon emissions uh, in the way that they produce their goods. And also there has to be a top-down mandate by governments to say, you can't do this, um, even if, if the companies are already on that kind of pathway to improving their, their supply chains and things like that. So um, top-down and bottoms-up, I, I think, makes perfect sense. And in the U.S. right now, there's a there's administration that's way more friendly uh, to this approach. Um, the U.S. has re-entered the Paris Accords Agreement. Um, the U.S. can't go it alone. Um, the U.S. has to work with the world uh, to try to reduce emissions, carbon emissions. And it's a really a, a global initiative. And it's a big area of investing. And I think it's, a, it's an area that companies are looking to innovate. Um, it's, it's really, it's disruptive just, just by its nature. Um, you look at solar and wind, and these, these are companies that could really tangibly improve certain environmental and social matters. Um, and it's relevant on an industrial scale um, and really could positively impact people, the planet, and at the same time, it could reward investors and, and translate to, into financial profits. So you're going to hear a lot more about sustainable investing um, as well as sustainable themed investing. Yeah, interesting. And do you think there's, there was quite a lot of chatter early on uh, when these sustainable um, ESG sort of stuff started coming through? that quite a few of the companies that were sort of claiming to be sustainable weren't actually sustainable at all. But do you think that's changing now and that you're able to see some cleaner sort of uh, ETS with the constituents in really meeting the sustainability goals, et cetera? Well, I, I think that uh, th there's different, um, different ways to, to look at sustainability. Um, mm -hmm. there's, there's the negative screens. Um, and the exclusionary screens and there's the more inclusionary screens as well so that there are different ESG integration approaches. So the, there are certain, um, you know, MSCI looks at um, exclusionary um, methods to ascertain whether a company is, is um, truly, you know, rates them and falling into uh, kind of an ESG category. So, you know, it, it's 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 definitely a moving target, um, and with respect to sustainability and sustainable investing, it's it's evolving. And um, again, I, you know, I mentioned earlier that it, that it's aspirational. So, if there's a demand for a company to improve the way they treat their employees, the way they produce their goods, that they have more diverse boards, and the customers are, you know, they, they want to purchase goods from those type of companies and certain good companies want to do business with those type of companies that are being more aspirational and improving. Um, I, I think that's kind of the, the path forward for, for on the ESG front and, you know, many different themes you can look at through the lens of the UN sustainable goals, you know, no poverty, clean water, um, not employing um, uh, children, no child labor. So, the world is moving towards trying to kind of meet um, meet these some of these goals, and many of these companies are trying. Are and again, it's it's aspirational. Yeah, it's always going to be difficult uh, because it's controversial, isn't it? Talking about some people, some people think things are only um, 
incredibly sustainable and clean they met meet these really high criteria and an example i've, I've heard used before is, is nuclear i think whereas so a lot of people aren't, aren't a fan of nuclear energy uh because obviously nuclear waste etc but it's apparent as far as i've read up it's one of the only ways it's going to sustainably get us off uh fossil fuel uh fossil fuels so you know it's, it's a it's a comparatively a better alternative although may not be the most sustainable thing that we could get if i suppose yeah, and, and nuclear obviously has the issue of yeah. what if there's next. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, ironically, I, I lived in Ukraine, which was, uh, I lived in Kiev, 60 miles from Chernobyl. Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, I think many many would argue that, <laughs> that nuclear, just because of the risks of an accident, um, obviously the accident in Japan, um, poses, poses a risk. Yeah, it doesn't... Um, Barring any sort of environmental disaster, uh, then sure, it, it, potentially it's it's a clean source of energy. But you know, where where do you put the plutonium? Yeah. Still have to store the yeah. um, the waste. So that, I mean, that that's somewhat of an issue. But in, in terms of sustainable investing and ESG, it, it is somewhat of a people have different views on it. Yeah. Um, so what's socially responsible to one person is not necessarily to another person. So it's hard to clearly define what that means. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. So I think it'd be an interesting segue now into another um, selection of your sort of portfolios, the core series and sustainable core series. Uh, I assume I think those are quite new, which are which are balanced. I think uh, in, in different ways compared for different risk profiles, using a mixture of strategies and asset types. Um, are you able to go into some detail about what these are um, and how they're constructed and to meet their goal? Basically, how they differ in that way. Sure. Um, the uh, the core series is that that's that's our asset allocation suite, um, and then the sustainable core series, which looks at sustainability um, at the sustainability components um, using the same asset allocation. So, I, I briefly mentioned earlier the the core series uh, uses stock bonds and cash, and has five different risk profiles from conservative to aggressive. And what the core series and the sustainable core series have in common is that we include um, thematics. Um, Within the the sustainable series, we have kind of three buckets. We have uh, the bucket that includes uh, just your typical asset allocation, um, where you're you're looking at ETFs that are more exclusionary. Um, we also um, include thematics, um, looking at them through the lens of sustainability. Um, and then we also have that clean tech bucket in this, um, for the sustainable portfolio. But the tradition, the other core series, uh, the non-sustainable core series, we do include thematics um, in all of the risk profiles. And it's in a moderate portfolio, we scale in an appropriate ma- amount of the thematic disruptors portfolio into the core series 
to provide the end user with a full exposure of your typical asset allocation of stock bonds and cash that's providing diversification um, between equities and fixed income. And when you're building an asset allocation models, you're looking at the past. You're looking for commonalities from the past to build that portfolio. But when you're adding in thematics, thematics really are different. Next time is going to be different. There has been nothing like it. The adoption curve, um, is, you know, as I talked earlier, it goes from the innovators to kind of the laggards. The innovators, early adopters, or early majority, late majority, kind of looking for that growth in the early adopters and early majority stage. And we're infusing that or scaling that into uh, a portion of the equity exposure. So that, that's what I find really unique about these portfolios. And it's really building on some of the early concepts uh, that I developed when I, was at, when I was at Merrill Lynch. Could you just describe the main differences between a conservative uh, strategy and a, an aggressive one, just to, for people who are aware of how you know, these things change and what, what makes something aggressive? as it compared to a conservative? Sure, it it's really comes down to your mix of uh, equities and fixed income in your, your cash bucket. How much risk are you willing to take? Now, with fixed income, with rates being relatively low, although they have moved up recently, uh, long rates have moved up. In the US, um, you know, if, if it really, you really have to be positioned properly um, with respect to your duration, so. Uh, on the uh, conservative portfolio, you'll have a lower proportion to equities. You'll have a higher proportion to fixed income, but the duration will be lower, so you won't have that much interest rate risk. Conversely, if you go to a more aggressive portfolio, that more aggressive portfolio will have a higher exposure to equities, a lower um, exposure to fixed income. Uh, we still manage the duration based on market conditions. The duration will not be as short as a conservative portfolio. And have you um, ever considered? There's obviously been a rise in this, the new asset type, digital assets, essentially, or crypto. crypto. Um, have you discussed that at GlobalX? Is it something you're interested in? And how, you know, if so, how, how do you, would you incorporate something like that into your model portfolios? Well, right, right now, everyone's talking about cryptocurrencies, whether it be uh, Bitcoin or Ethereum or Dogecoin. <coughs> um, but... You remember that the portfolios that I built are um, ETF portfolios. So yeah. in the U.S., there's no ETFs um, that have direct exposure to cryptocurrencies. There's some ETFs that have some tangential exposure to um, the blockchain technology. Um, so it, right now, it would be pretty difficult to include in, in, in a portfolio, at least the portfolios that, that I built. Now, arguments say that an ETF a Bitcoin ETF or Ethereum ETF actually existed. The question is, would I include it? And I would say that it, it's a very new asset class and it's very volatile. Um, I think I would have to build a new portfolio and would be pretty trans, always transparent, but prescriptive and what this portfolio could potentially do or not do. And um, so I, the type of portfolios, the core series portfolios, I, I, I just don't think there's a home for digital assets at this point, um, even if I had the ability or the vehicle to use in the portfolio. So, Yeah, okay, fair. Um, and obviously another uh, big ETF provider in the space is, is ARK. Um, 
is it is it something you actively try and differentiate against? Uh, I'm not sure if they offer model portfolios per se. They, uh, but are you thinking about this sort they of? They do thing? provide SMAs uh, using single stocks, I believe. Um, you know, the the ARC ETFs are actively managed ETFs. Our ETFs are not actively managed. Uh, for the most part, they're not actually managed. We have a couple, but um, we don't actively try to differentiate or be the same as ARC um, or the ARC Innovation Fund with respect to our thematic portfolio. Um, but what I can say is that our thematic disruptors portfolio is a lot more diversified than something uh, like an ARKK. If you think about how many positions based on companies. So if you aggregate the companies in the ETFs that we include within the thematic disruptors portfolio, there's probably over 500 companies. Uh, The ARK Innovation Fund has um, much less and more concentrated exposure. So they're very different types of access points to thematics. So we we don't explicitly try to go after um, or try to be the same Mm -hmm. Or different. We're we're trying to build a, a thematic portfolio that provides what we believe are the right themes that are going to tackle um, and capture changing technology going forward in the thematic disruptors portfolio. So, um, yeah, it, it's it, and inherently there's more sector diversification within our portfolio as well because we have over 500 names in the portfolio. Yep, and just. Swinging back to sort of macro trends we touched on uh, at the, the start of the interview, a, a big thing happening at the moment is this sort of in inflation narrative. We're at starting to see now that, you know, it's apparent that inflation is, is coming in. So even today, um, May 12th, uh, some of the, the data came out today on CPI, I think it's 3% versus 2.3% expected, a lot higher than expected. 10-year yields have, have gone up. Um, because of that, because of the inflation sort of expectation going higher. Uh, what, what do you think are the consequences of rising inflation for equities over the next year or so, or even going forward further? So we have a very unique situation. We, we've had a, a pandemic that most of us have never lived through. And then we've had uh, central banks around the world, um, as well as governments that have been actively trying to plug the holes as economies were effectively shut down to, to prevent the transmission um, of COVID-19 around the world. So w- within the U.S., you, ha- you had uh, a tremendous, um, the Fed was proactive, providing a tremendous amount of support, cutting interest rates, uh, buying securities to stabilize the market. Then you also had on the Congress in the U.S. providing a tremendous amount of support through stimulus programs and unemployment benefits for uh, large. The unemployment rate um, went up there at the peak of the pandemic. There was about 20 million people in the U.S. that were unemployed. So uh, there was different programs for small businesses to help them operate through the pandemic. Um, so that to provide assistance so they wouldn't have to uh, fire certain employees. Um, so there was a tremendous amount of support and that was um, a positive and, and, and necessary. And other central banks around the world um, 
also did many things for their populations where they could. Now, over the course of the year, um, or 13 or 14 months, as we are, as vaccines have been effectively distributed in the U.S., um, we are starting to see the economy start to reopen. And you've had a kind of a confluence of events of one, the pandemic, two, if you go back prior to the pandemic, you had um, a different administration in the U.S., which was uh, more of a populist administration. Um, and with China, they were imposing tariffs on China. So there was already going on some disruption in supply chains prior to the pandemic. Now, you add in the pandemic when it was very difficult to move goods around the world. Uh, many factories around the globe shut down. And there's, there's a lot more interconnectivity than one would think. Um, China is a, is a very important player in the world. Um, China produces lots of uh, inexpensive goods and components for different items um, around the world, whether it be in Europe or, or the U.S. And with the disruption in the supply chains, um, and now that things are being turned on, um, economies are starting, people are traveling more, um, built more building is occurring. Um, and while there's a lot of people unemployed in the U.S., there's at the same time, in a strange way, there's a scarcity of labor in certain areas, which is causing to push up wages um, in certain areas. And the cost of many different goods are going up. Um, almost any commodity that you can think of, whether it be uh, corn, heating oil, uh, wheat, uh, natural gas, cotton, lumber. Lumber prices in the U.S. have gone parabolic. Um, the cost to build a new home in the U.S. has increased. The average new home has increased an average of thirty-six thousand dollars just based on lumber prices. So these are these are all components that are certainly inflationary. And the question is: Is it transitory or is it more permanent? Um, and the Fed has been pretty explicit that they, they want the economy to, they, they, they are overshooting their targets and um, they're not doing anything about this, this heating up right now. Because if you look back to the financial crisis, the financial crisis post, there, there was a good amount of central bank intervention um, and there were some stimulus packages, but not enough. And there was slow growth for the next 10 years, which could have been some of the reasons for the rise in populism in the U.S. and around the globe. So the question really now is, is it transitory or is, is it more permanent? And that, that's an open question. And so by transitory, is almost sort of because of the supply shock and the reopening happening quickly, you're, you're, you're basically, there's too much demand now, and it, but it will stabilize potentially in the future as things, you know, start to calm down a bit. That, that's what we're saying when it's transitory, are we? Yeah, I mean, the Fed and policymakers and, and other economists, are, they're, just, they're basically dismissing the current round of numbers as, as transitory. And that okay. they're expecting that inflation settles down later this year, around the 2% range targeted by the central bank. Mm -hmm. uh, so what's interesting is, is long-dated U.S. Treasuries just rose modestly based on, on these numbers. Um, today, they, they came out in response to the higher readings. and and so that's sort of suggesting that market participants are, aren't really seeing any material change to the Fed's assessment of the economy. 
And then okay. inflation really is just being driven by external factors rather than domestic overheat or uh, weak employment mm-hmm. data that came out last week. Um, and that's longer term that the main risk really is that the U.S. recovery will be slower than anticipated and and the imported inflationary pressures will kind of subside. But again, the, some of these numbers actually could, could be vetted out when we see um, some of the retail sales numbers, which are coming up mm-hmm. next week. And given all these unknowns in, in the market, um, what, how would you go about portfolio selection, for example? How do you uh, address this uncertainty, given that you know, there's some things that have just never happened before? Um, and two vastly different scenarios, you know, if we go into stagflation or if it's just transitory and we, we start you know, growing again normally? Yeah, I mean, I'll take the stagflation part first. Is, you know, the problem today is that we're, we're recovering from a negative aggregate supply shock. And you have had very loose monetary and fiscal policies, which, you know, in theory could, could lead to inflation or worse, stagflation, which is just high inflation alongside a recession, but we pulled out of the recession. But if you think back to stagflation of the 70s, that really came out of negative oil shocks from following the, the Yom Kippur War in 1973 in Israel and the, the Iranian Revolution in 79. So you had, you had a couple multiple exogenous shocks. Uh, right now, I don't necessarily see an exogenous shock unless you have Taiwan or China uh, takes military action against Taiwan, which certainly would be a shock. And um, that would cause a lot of manufacturing problems around the world um, and would really disrupt global supply chain. So in, in today's context, we, we need to worry about supply shock as threats to potential growth and as, as possible factors driving up production costs. And you're having this move towards deglobalization and rising protectionism and these post-pandemic supply bottlenecks. And that's where kind of where we are today. And you are seeing a lot of global supply chains trying to reshore. But reshoring is not necessarily just, is not an easy thing. It takes a long time. Um, you have to build factories. Um, you have to move around employees or um, find markets that are providing cheaper labor. Um, so I, I think that's kind of feeding into this this whole narrative of you know of you're you're seeing the shift from you know growth to value uh, because you, you've seen growth stocks move up uh, in a meaningful way, um, and that partially is a result of the use of many of many you know look at technology companies and how we're using technology uh how we have used technology over the past year and now that the economy is reopening and we're talking about infra- huge infrastructure packages in the US and you know what what are the sectors that are going to most benefit and then you're also having a reopening of the service sector uh, planes are flying at full capacity people are visiting hotels and traveling in the US again so you're you're seeing that natural shift, um, and material companies, um, industrial companies certainly would benefit from um, infrastructure packages. But you're just seeing also a lot of building in the U.S. too, and um, the shortage of supplies are playing into that as well. So having a focus on value um, uh, 
or themes that are positively impacted by some of the policies that are going on, particularly in the U.S., like an infrastructure package. Um, the infrastructure theme um, is certainly one that's playing out right now. So that, that would be an exposure that would yeah. be really relevant that we do include in some of our portfolios. Um, mm-hmm. But the long-term trend of growth, I do believe, will still march on, uh, although we have had some pullback recently. Yeah. And just moving the lens over to China a bit more, what, what do you, because um, for the last uh, sort of 10 years, US has really been the big growth story in terms of equities, um, disregarding you know, what's happened over the last year, sort of rising and, and the crash and everything. Um, do you see China being somewhere uh, as a big opportunity for the next 10 years? China is, is the second uh, largest economy in the world. And over the past year, their economic recovery built momentum. Um, they're the only major economy uh, to post positive growth in 2020. And they were very effective in controlling or managing through COVID. They have a very different type of government structure, obviously. Um, it's more of a th- an authoritative country. Um, you know, people call it a communist country. I'm not really sure it's a communist country, quite honestly. They, uh, they are producing more billionaires uh, than any other country at a, a very fast pace. Uh, so they are more capitalist with uh, an authoritative uh, uh, political system. Now, I, I think China is, is expected to continue growing at a higher rate than much of the rest of the world in 2021. Um, in its April outlook, the IMF uh, revised its forecast for China growth upwards of 8.4% for 2021. Um, and I think that's largely due to strong external demand tied to you know, stimulus packages uh, within advanced economies. And we've already seen a recovery in, in the industrial investment and tr- trade data from China. And I, I think further growth will likely be aided by policies favoring a full recovery in, the, in consumption in China. And now, despite this, there's been a sell-off in China. Um, and I think this could be partly explained by a rise in the 10-year Treasury yields which supported the U.S. dollar and value-oriented assets and, and hurt overseas and growth-oriented assets. Um, could, there's concerns over preemptive tightening in monetary policy, which also contributed to some of the sell-off. Um, but China is a very important economy. Um, they're an important trade partner. And even if you're not investing directly in China, you're in some way, shape, or form exposed to China. And I think. Um, China is an opportunity yeah. going forward. And outside of China, are any countries that, that you believe offer some interesting opportunities going forward? Yeah, I think uh, Vietnam looks pretty interesting. Um, they've done a really good job in terms of vaccinations. They have a cheaper labor force than China. So companies are looking to diversify their supply chain to production. So Vietnam looks interesting from that perspective. Um, also, uh, they have a, a new administration of Vietnam, which is very forward-looking. Uh, there have been proposals for these mega economic zones where they're looking to foster high-tech industries and high-tech agricultural project, projects. So I think Vietnam has good growth potential. Oh, interesting. Well, that's great, John. Um, thanks for all of the feedback there and, and uh, interesting insights and stuff. I just want to finish by doing this quick fire round, uh, f- four questions, uh, not looking 
for long answers, just, you know, first thing that comes to mind. And it's just something we do at the end of quite a few uh, interviews. Sure. To kick off, um, name an investing hero you follow. An investing hero. So um, this may sound a bit trite, but uh, my favorite investing hero is my dad. Uh, my dad, uh, he was a good investor. Um, he retired really early. Um, and something that I learned from him and that uh, I always think about, and it has some applicability to thematic investing, is, is that he always said, look towards an event. Uh, so I think back to my childhood. We, I grew up in New Jersey, and um, there was a highway that was to be built not too far from our house. My parents weren't thrilled how close the highway is to our house. But what my dad explained to me is that highway was going to, which was Route 78, was going to open up a part of New Jersey that was not easily accessible. And he always said, buy something where there's going to be an event. And that this particular event was, was a highway. And he had purchased land way before in, in areas that he, he knew this highway was eventually going to be opened. So the event was the highway to accessing different parts. And you can really apply that to, to, to many different areas. Um, you think about like a computer uh, before there was the internet. What, what, what was the real use case for a computer? Yeah, you can do some fun things on it, play some video games maybe, um, or create some, some um, code. But there was no major use case for the average person until there was the internet, until there was like interconnectivity. So even there was the internet that really connected all computers. So I, I do think back to my dad about that highway example. And next is a, f a favorite book. Doesn't have to be one about investment. So I, I've read a bunch of books lately, um, but one that, that has stuck with me is, is uh, called Sapiens. Uh, Sapiens, it's a history of humans and how we have really thrived and how we've developed. I mean, I, it, what I've learned from this book, and just it just rang true, is that humans had this incredible ability to really cooperate with each other, potentially, or fight against each other, really. Um, and we have a unique capacity to believe in things that are just magical or just in our imagination, whether it be gods, religion, nations, money. And the author, um, Yuval Noah Harari, claims that all large-scale human cooperation systems including like religion and political structures and legal institutions, they, they are the emergence to the human's ability to actually just believe in fiction. And, and money, uh, which pertains to our business, is, is a system of mutual trust. And we have, we have to believe that money has value and that someone will honor that commitment. And for, for example, you take your money and you deposit your money into a bank you have to believe that that bank is going to give back your money when you need it. Um, and they can use it to make more money um, while you don't need it. Um, and you can earn interest on that money. So it's a belief system. And obviously, we know the concept of running on the bank. Um, if, you, if that system collapses, then the whole concept of, of, of money could collapse. Yeah. Um, and it has happened in certain areas and regions. An important lesson the market has taught you maybe in, in the, over the last year, but it can be whenever. <laughs> um, don't get too emotional. Um, don't overreact. Obviously, look for trends. Look at things that are changing. Look to the future. Um, look at companies that are changing their business model. 
everything changes. And if you don't evolve and adapt to uh, and look towards the future, um, your company, your business is going to die. Um, and you know, you look during the pandemic, if a company didn't evolve digitally quickly, um, they didn't have a shot. Um, what I do know is that over time, the broad markets uh, have moved in one direction. Obviously, there's periods of time within that they go down. They go down for extended periods of time. Um, but don't don't miss out. Um, so you're you're nervous that you're invested in a broad market index, and uh, you're nervous that something's going to happen, and you're investing in the S and P 500 is going to go to zero. It's very unlikely. It's never happened. Um, so psychologically, you want to exit. Um, but if you miss some of those updates, you're going to miss um, the strong returns you're going to have over time if you stay invested. And as a portfolio manager, obviously looking to kind of capture inefficiencies, capture new trends, um, but still don't get too nervous when markets correct. And finally, what's your edge? My edge. So I've, I've been in this business, uh, I guess, a, a long time at, at this point. Um, particularly compared to some of the people at Global X. Uh, it's definitely a company that, that tilts younger, um, not that I'm so old. So I think uh, my experience is, is certainly helpful. Uh, working at two large organizations, then moving to a smaller organization, which is growing pretty fast. We went from five to $32 billion pretty quickly. Um, that's provided me a lot of uh, knowledge and experience. Um, I'm also a, a pretty casual person. So my current company uh, probably is suited better to my personality than, than, than my prior two companies that I spent 21 years at. Um, so my edge, I think, is, is my experience, uh, my leadership style, which is, which is casual. Um, and uh, just being honest and authentic. And I think that's carried me through uh, my career. Amazing. Thanks, John. Uh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Do you um, can you possibly let us know, or let our community know where can they find your insights? Can they follow you on Twitter, or uh, is there a blog you contribute to? Yeah. Um, so my uh, we have a, a website www.globalxetfs.com. Uh, www uh, we have uh, research. Uh, from our research team, as well as uh, research and macro research and information on our, on our portfolios on that site um, that that I and my team produce. I also have a Twitter handle. Um, it's at, at John D. Mayer, J-O-N, no H in John, J-O-N-D-M-A-I-E-R. So uh, I periodically tweet. Cool. That's awesome. Is there anything else you want to... Um Tell our community. I mean, all the all the ETFs are also um, available to look at on globalxetfs.com. Yes. Uh, so if you go to the, that that website and you go to explore our ETFs, we have approximately eighty-two ETFs. We have about thirty-two billion dollars in assets. Some of our, our larger ETFs, uh, which Pave, which is our U.S. infrastructure and development ETF, we have LIT, which is our lithium and battery technology ETF with over $3 billion in assets. Uh, we have mm -hmm. our NASDAQ 100 covered call ETF, QYLD, which has been of interest to many lately. Robotics and artificial intelligence. The list goes on. 
Um, Copper Miners ETF has uh, gained a lot of interest lately. It's DOPX as um, copper is used in, in production and connectivity and, um, and with the increase in, in building and, and you know, another raw material that, that is, uh, has moved up in price because of availability. Yes. Brilliant. All right, John. Well, that, that's, been, um, that's been great. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. And we'll catch up again soon, I hope. <laughs> great. It was, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, Ed. Cheers, John. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to Co-Fruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.